0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Distributed Morphs. This is a podcast about distributed morphology and other topics related to linguistic morphology. Today, we're going to be talking with Professor Heidi Harley of the University of Arizona. Heidi Harley is one of the most accomplished scholars in distributed morphology. She has well over 30 journal articles, monographs, and other texts. She is also uh, a mentor and personal friends this conversation discusses some of the core concepts of the distributed morphology and a range of other topics I hope you enjoy hey Heidi how are things going
1: hi Jeff good to talk to you excellent well moderate
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean we are under social distancing and all sorts of other bizarre circumstances right now.
1: There are some constraints, but that's what makes a podcast a perfect way to talk.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. We, we can maintain our social distance. So thank you for being my first guest. Um, So I I think I described a little bit to you what our goals are, but for the, the listener, you know, we're just here to try to, introduce distributed morphology, morphology more generally. Um, So with that in mind, um, would you be willing to describe in your view what distributed morphology is and how you think it contrasts with uh, some of the other major approaches to grammar that are out there?
1: Um, Sure. So uh, distributed morphology is a, a theory of, I guess a theory of grammar, although you might think of it as a enrichment to a generally minimalist theory of grammar that adds to the empirical uh, coverage and predictive capacity of minimalist approaches to grammar and the syntax morphology interface um, in general. But uh, since it's kind of grown over the years, um, probably you could call it its own theory of grammar. Basically, it's an account of uh, word structure and sentence structure all under the same umbrella. So if you have a theory of how sentences are put together, um, at least parts of that theory are going to be relevant to how words are put together in a distributed morphology approach. We have a, a catchphrase that we use to describe this feature of the theory called syntax all the way down. And um, that's probably the main way that it contrasts with other approaches to grammar that are out there. Um, there's, uh, if you are a, a, a lexicalist theory, head-driven phrase structure grammar, or lexical functional grammar, um, then you say that syntax involves combining words into phrases And there's other operations that apply uh, to combine subword parts into words. Um, If you are a kind of a parallel architecture grammar like uh, Jack and Doff's or uh, Williams's or similar uh, architectures, then you have... uh, bunch of representations that just stand in a correlation with each other. So you have syntactic representation, word representation, uh, semantic representation, and they're all just connected to each other by little lines. You don't uh, derive one from the other. So in the true morphology, you derive words from little parts and sentences from the same little parts. They're all, it's all one big derivational chain um in terms of propaganda for the theory i would say that it has uh richly motivated uh richly empirically motivated proposals for almost anything you can name in the um syntax morphology interface world and the syntax phonology or the morphology phonology interface world so um unlike uh a lot of morphology it is not in a silo together with some, you know, related only to phonology or related only to syntax. We know what the proposals are for how to get from phonology to morphology to syntax and back again, and from syntax to semantics, because we have a theory of that independently of distributed morphology. So uh, so I think that one of its strengths is that uh, you can trace a prediction from all the way from the phonology to the semantics and uh data from all kinds of different domains can bear on your particular analysis
0: that's great that that really ties into my my next question for you which is if you had to kind of pin down one key insight that you think dm has provided to our knowledge of language um that you really would want to highlight more um like and again, I know this is a really tough question. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to make you t- to pick only one, but you know, the Sophie's choice of the one thing that DM has done, what, what do you think that would be?
1: Oh, that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so I guess. Uh, right. Um, So I'm looking at my I wrote a. I wrote down a few things that I really wanted to get out there. I guess one that I would like to get out there is uh, the idea that we've got um, functional items are do the bulk of everything in the theory. So you have in traditional theories of morphology, you have a distinction between say derivational morphology and inflectional morphology, or sometimes between, um, uh, productive and unproductive morphology. And, uh, and there's, you know, various kinds of hard theory internal dividing lines that are supposed to separate out the derivation from the inflection, um, Architecturally, even like a theory might put one in one silo and another in another little box entirely. Yeah,
0: and, you can see that in like uh, uh, lexical phonology, for instance, and in right. some versions of that.
1: Right. So, um, so distributed morphology, as part of its uh, adherence to its catchphrase syntax all the way down, does not draw any such lines. So we have. Um, all morphology is morphology. Inflection and derivation are all under the same hood. They're um, uh, uh, in, in; they're part of the structure-building operations in exactly the same way. They're all part of the sort of inventory of syntactic formatives that the syntactic system uses to build structure. So there's all of those things, and then there's the quote lexical or, uh, encyclopedic or, um, root material, that thing, those things, the very core of every, um, you know, sort of encyclopedically rich or semantically rich, I hate to say semantically rich, but, uh, sort of, yeah, nuanced piece of, uh, verb meaning of word meaning, um, comes from that root material, uh, which is, that one is in a silo in distributed morphology, but it's not in a structural silo, it's in a lexical silo. The roots are special. They are something else. And then everything else is in the same box uh, and part of the syntactic computation.
0: It's almost like you were preparing for these questions in advance.
1: <laughs> How could such a thing even happen?
0: <laughs> but uh, So one aspect of your research deals with the nature of roots. <laughs> And I'm just curious if you could, you know, elaborate more on this. I know there's some, some controversy, uh, regarding roots about their nature. Yeah. Um, and you know, you have a lot of thoughts on this I and, have... you know, could you describe what it is, what a root is in distributed morphology just, yeah. so, uh, and then we could build from there.
1: Sure. So, um, so part of syntax all the way down means that, uh, when you see, a morph to adapt a term recently proposed by Martin Haspel math for the thing that we used to call morpheme or some in intro classes, when you see a morph, uh, that's a terminal node in the syntax that has been, uh, you know, at, uh, put in there at least 99% of the time been put in there by virtue of a syntactic structure building operation. So if I look at the word atomic, for example, I've got atom, That's one part. That's one morph in the word atomic and ick. That's another part of part of the word. So atomic is an adjective talking about things that have uh, properties related to atoms. Um, So we know that there is a morph ick and we know that there's a morph atom and uh, that they've been put together by the syntax. Now we can look at other kinds of words, uh, for example, electric. Um, And we see that morph ick there, and it seems to be doing the same job that it does in atomic. So in electric, that's things, you know, properties uh, related to electricity. Um, uh, But then we take that ick off, and what we're left with is electra, which is not a word on its own. Um, Lots of things in distributive morphology that are not words on their own are going to have independent entries in the lexicon, and uh, they're going to be um, uh, listed as bound in some sense. They have to be part of a bigger thing in order to be illicit uh, utterance in the language. And "electra" in "electric" is like that. It's a root, so it's the root of the word "electric." Um, it has its own meaning, but it doesn't necessarily stand alone. In "atomic." Atoms does stand alone, but it's also the root of the word atomic. So, um, part of the implementation of the syntax all the way down uh, mantra involves positing a bunch of these things as uh, standalone lexical items uh, that don't have word like status. And those things, the roots, those are going to be where all the sort of Encyclopedic meaning comes from. So, an electric, the core meaning of that word doesn't come from ick, of course, it comes from electra. So, recognizing the existence of things like that, of roots like that, um, brings with it a bunch of questions like how do you know what the meaning of electra is if you never hear it standing alone? Uh, how do you know what the meaning of cron is in chronic? Uh, if it never occurs on its own. So uh, those are some of the kinds of questions that arise uh, once you really adopt the concept of roots in your grammatical theory.
0: Yes. And there's also the question of uh, whether or not the roots have uh, sort of a, a a lexical status uh, regarding, you know, whether or not they're nouns or verbs, which I think is something you've, Yeah. Focused a lot of energy on it as
1: well. Right. So in terms of theoretical issues, um, uh, there, there is, there are, there are lots of various theoretical issues and that absolutely is one of them, whether there is category attached to root. Electric uh, is a good example. And so is chronic for that matter, because electric clearly um, doesn't, uh, doesn't have a category by itself, or it's hard to think of what category it might have. By itself if you want to make a noun with that root you have to add uh, you have to take electra add ik and then add itty to that for electricity or you could add on to make electron um, but you can't just have it be a noun on its own if you want it to be a verb mm-hmm. you have to take if I which is a verbalizing suffix and add it to that so electrify it's the same root in all of those words and yet uh, it by itself doesn't have a category. So the hypothesis that uh, that I've been pursuing, following you know the original morphology proposals, is that roots actually never have a category until they compose with some uh, functional item that gives them a category. Uh, this is actually an idea that grew out of um, Chomsky's work in, in the 19 in the 1971 paper "Remarks on Nominalization." Interestingly enough, um, but uh, anyway, it's a, it's a pretty hotly contested thing. So not all roots are like Electra. Right. Um, there are lots of roots that seem to really look like, say, verbs by themselves, like, um, you know, sieve, for example, and receive and perceive and deceive and conceive. Uh, that guy uh, seems to want to be a verb. And if you want it to be a noun, you have to add stuff to it. So there's lots of questions about markedness and directions of derivation and well and
0: sieve even uh, becomes phonologically different when it's a noun. When it's a noun. It has that, that yeah. sieve sept.
1: Sieve sept alternation. So you got yeah. some uh, some allomorphy questions going on, but sept doesn't occur by itself either. You've got to add shun right. to that. So uh, so the then In those kinds of cases, the noun form looks more marked, say, than the verb form. So if you have a lot of uh, feelings about markedness, which many, many people do, it's very boggling to me how many feelings people have about (laughs) markedness. But anyway, if you have a lot of feelings about markedness, you would look at that pattern and say uh, receive is a verb and reception is a noun derived from that verb plus some fancy allomorphy. And there's no two ways about it. You wouldn't want to say that receive was a category or that seeve was a categorial, and then it was turned into a verb and then that was turned into a noun. That would be a lot of wasted analysis. So, uh, so it's not the case that this is an uncontentious proposal.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you a question now that you didn't prepare for because, uh, but you've been using the, the, uh, the terminology syntax all the way down a lot and uh i know that there are some people that object to this because of some of the the operations that occur uh perhaps post syntactically uh yeah. things like uh fission fusion uh readjustments uh even uh things that m- look more syntactic like uh uh uh, uh local uh dislocation mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh so uh w- how would you respond to critics of distributed morphology that say that it's not syntax all the way down because we have readjustment rules?
1: Right. So it's a very good point. So um, the, I mean, readjustment rules are another category of thing, but let's just stick with the ones that really mess with the syntaxy representation. So you have your uh, like your your functional items and your root, whatever it is, and or multiple ones, and you smush them all together with using merge into a hierarchical structure. And that hierarchical structure is the input to both the morphological, phonological system on the one side and the logical form system, the semantic representation system on the other side. And what syntax all the way down tells us is that if a particular piece of structure is interpreted both at phonology and at syntax, uh, sorry, both at phonology and at semantics, it was built by the syntax. So it is true that distributed morphology has a ton of um, ways to trim and tweak the structure that syntax builds in order for a well-formed output to appear in a particular language. So those things obviously are not syntax all the way down, but we know what to expect from them. We know A, we should not expect them to have an effect on interpretation. We know B, they should not uh, be universals, so to speak. So there shouldn't be any impoverishment rule, for example, that is universally applicable in all languages. That would be uh, crazy. They should be language specific, well-formedness driven kinds of expressions, kinds of uh, operations. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's just a question. So let's say you know what the sort of ground rules are for proposing one of these uh, post-syntactic pruning, trimming operations that, you know, shape up your structure so that the mouths of particular speakers are happy to spit it out. Um, Then, uh, it's just, then it's just an empirical game. Like if somebody says, I have a theory of this phenomenon that can uh, provide just as good empirical coverage as your theory with the extra, you know, add on, then, uh, you know, the two theories can go head to head and the, you know, the Occam's razor one wins. But yeah. until you have a counter proposal for a specific empirical phenomenon, I don't think you can point at a your morphology and just say a priori we don't like that. That doesn't look good. Stop now. Give it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you can do that. People do do that, but uh, sure. You would. I mean, be...
0: we do it with with other uh, with lexical approaches. I mean, I mean yeah. not exactly no. that, but I mean, yeah. we have reasons to to be suspicious that's of right. lexical approaches, but that's right. we do it with lexical approaches to a certain right. extent as well,
1: and I, that's for sure true. And I think that, you know, the meaningful engagement comes when you look at a phenomenon and develop a counterproposal and engage with the literature on that phenomenon in the counterproposal. And so, you know, distribution morphologists have not always been that great about this. A lot of us just have our heads down. We're trying to develop our own ideas as best we can, given the framework that we have. But uh, sometimes we look up and get involved with cross framework comparisons that are empirically grounded, not just, uh, theoretically, um, sort of pissing contests.
0: (laughs) Yes. So let's talk a little bit about some of, uh, uh, different empirical work that you've done, particularly your, uh, field work on Yaki. And I just want to know how this field research that you've spent, uh, a considerable amount of time, time on has, uh, influenced or changed your view of grammar, not necessarily just on distributed morphology, but in general.
1: Um, so, yeah, so I have been working on Hiaki, which is a udo second language spoken here in the Southwest in Sonora and Arizona and other parts of the U S um, for now, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. So a really long time since I came to Arizona. And um, I would say that the, the main thing that that work has done for me as a scientist has been to make me extremely humble. So <laughs> I can't even tell you how many times I have thought I knew what the heck I was saying and what was going on. And then like five years later, I'll be going, Oh, Oh, that's what that was. So, um, It's definitely an evolving state of, it gives you the feeling of being in an evolving state of knowledge. So that's one thing is it makes you feel very ignorant. On the other thing, on the other hand, though, it has made me feel very happy and sanguine about some of the core results of theoretical syntax and theoretical morphology, generally speaking. So. Um when I first got to Hyaki, I looked at the case system and I thought, oh, hooray! I know what's going on here. It's just the way case ought to work. It just works perfectly uh, according to, you know, if Chomsky and Vernod had got together and dreamed up a case system, it would be Hyaki. So Coming to Hyaki completely ignorant of it with the sort of cross linguistic, theoretically grounded understanding of how grammars capital G work capital W, um, I could immediately sink my teeth into a piece of the grammar and say, okay, I can say what's happening here. And that having that to hang on to while I explored all the other weird stuff that I didn't understand at all kept bringing me uh, hope and grounding my proposals in something that was pretty obviously a real phenomenon and a real analysis of something that I didn't even have to work for. Um, So that's been very heartening. I have to say other kinds of universals or typological things that you expect to see things like, um, you know, the, the, the functional hierarchy above the verb. So aspect tense, you know, complementizer stuff, you know, you look at that and it's, there it is in Yaki, and you feel like, ah, I recognize that. Mm-hmm. Or I've looked I before I came to Yaki, I'd looked a lot at causatives and an agglutinating language like Japanese. And I got to Yaki and look, there's causatives and, oh yeah, I know how to worry about them. I know how to think about them. Passives. Uh, it's more challenging but at least the basic outlines you could immediately recognize what was going on. So um so yeah, so it's both humbling and encouraging to look at a new grammatical system and try to think about it in terms of your theoretical preconceptions. The one other thing I have to say that Yaki has taught me is never say never. So Um, generative grammarians in particular are, you know, given to pronouncements about what's possible and impossible in language with a capital L. And that's good because that's the goal of our theory is to come up with a general picture of what human language in general can and cannot do. So people are likely to say, obviously, for this reason, we will never see phenomenon X. Um, but then you kind of get your teeth dug into a typologically slightly unusual system and you suddenly see phenomenon X coming up and telling you it's real. This is a real thing. <laughs> Crap! Oh like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so that's the thing like uh, the example that I can think of from my work on Hyakki that's like that is that um, there was a sort of a, a strongly worded statement about what, Suppletion could be within the distributed morphology framework. So, suppletion could only be competition between items, uh, between voc- what we call vocabulary items. Um, and competition between vocabulary items, it was hypothesized, could only arise among the functional morphemes. So, you couldn't see mm-hmm. competition at the root level. And you would, if you had suppletion, like the go-went kind of phenomenon, that was telling you that this wasn't a root. This wasn't an encyclopedically, lexically rich object. This is one of your uh, functional items. So in English, for example, go-went is a what we might call a light verb. It has 30,000 different functions in the grammar of English. And so you could make a pretty good case that go-went had to be a light verb. Anyway, so I came to Hyaki. Uh, with that piece of dogma firmly embedded in my head. And then Yaki kept biting me with its 15 or so clearly root-like suppletive verbs. And uh, after a year or two of uh, seeing those things in action, I was like, okay, A, this is really suppletion. B, these are really roots. And that's all there is to it. So can't <laughs> never say never, I would yeah. say. <laughs> that's great. Mm. All right.
0: Uh one last question for you. So as if we project forward into the next, you know, five, maybe even ten years, what do you think the biggest challenges are for uh maybe young uh scholars working in distributed morphology and other scholars just trying to work within distributed morphology?
1: Well, for people trying to work with industry morphology, there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, territory that I would hope that people don't have to refight. So, you know, once you have syntax all the way down, view a syntax all the way down, view of the world would be nice not to have to refight that battle every time you write a paper, like. You don't have to introduce that concept and say, "I'm going to adopt this idea." You just say, "Boop, it's your morphology, I'm doing it." Um, and I think, to a certain extent, we've gotten past some of that. But there, all of the sort of distributed morphology um, uh, operations, these post-syntactic operations, are coming under heavy fire. Heavy fire from nanosyntax. At the moment. So uh, if you are a dyed in the wool, true blue nanosyntactician, then you start off with a fusillade of uh, statements about what you want a truly parsimonious theory of grammar to look like, all of which sa- are basically aimed at saying we're not going to do local dislocation, we're not going to do um, um impoverishment we're not going to do um uh, fusion or any of that we're gonna instead try to live without any of those operations which is great like yeah more power to you go ahead live without all those operations but i would hate for a product an empirically rich productive distributed morphology analysis to run into um reviewing problems that have to do with a sort of an a priori um sentiment against a particular operation uh that the analysis uh employs so to speak Mm -hmm. so each one of those operations is motivated by you know a reasonable number of analyses that use it and Um, it's, it's not the case. I think that, uh, maybe when you first read Halley and Marantz and you sort of see all of these, um, capitalized, um, operations flying in from out of left field, you think, yikes, none of this. (laughs) But I think what people sometimes fail to appreciate is that actually none of those things came from nowhere. It wasn't like they just leaped out of Halley's head one morning. They were operations that were that existed in the morphological literature, starting from gosh knows when, like or A number of long they have long antecedents in the non-generative literature. So all of those operations were designed before they got to distribution morphology to account for a substantial number of empirical cases. And when they arrived in distribution morphology, from the point of view of syntacticians, reading that one paper of Halley and Marantz's completely out of nowhere, they already were motivated. Um, And so then, you know, people looked at them and, Found oh yeah look I can apply that to do something good in my analysis of phenomenon X or oh yeah look at this can do some good typological work over here, um, uh, but particularly for syntacticians coming to disturb morphology for the first time, uh, they get the feeling that it's extremely ad hoc. All of those operations are extremely ad hoc, and maybe they are. They certainly don't look anything like the kind of um, the kind of minimalist mergey kind of operation or agree kind of operation um, that we have all been conditioned to um, uh, to value by uh, rhetoric about what a really good theory should look like from the minimalist perspective. Um, right. On the other hand, uh, there's in, within the minimalist perspective, there's room for a lot of Third factor phenomena that can drive um, uh, let's call it irregularity in a system, and in the sort of world of uh, say uh, rats, what is that? Is it like grammar evolution? The stuff that Andy does, Andy Waddle, my colleague. Anyway, in the world of looking for sort of. Um, evolutionary pressures, evolution is not quite the right word, but anyway, pressures on lexical systems uh, that are imposed by what you might call third-factor principles, um, there's room for a lot of unusual stuff to pop up. And you could look at all of those add-on things or you could hope that they might, many of them might have sort of third-factor explanations for why they're there. So... So in terms of like intellectual challenges for young disturbing morphologists, I would like to see people ask those questions about those operations. Like, let's say that impoverishment is a real thing. Why is it a real thing? What makes it a uh, part of our mental grammars? Um, I mean, to to kind of uh,
0: compare that to our phonological systems, I don't think anyone objects to you know, the the types of operations that must exist in phonology, which we have no problem agreeing that these are, these exist because of the fact of what are likely third factor. Yeah. Uh, de- design, uh, phenomenon.
1: Yeah. Dealing I mean, with,
0: uh, processing and production.
1: A hundred percent. But I think that people have a lot easier of a time imagining what are the third factor principles that impact phonology then they have imagining how those principles might impact morphology just because phonology is so much more obviously connected to phonetics which is so much more obviously connected to factors about the motor system or factors about the um you know the uh uh, the humidity in the air or the altitude that <laughs> the speakers are talking at, you know, you can just really see causal connections between the uh, external factors that impinge on phonetic realization and then sound to phonology. It's a little harder to see what the causal connections are uh, that impact the morphology. Um, but I think they're there. So, <laughs> so I would say sort of intellectually, that might be one, big challenge is to sort of strive to look for such factors where you're really when you're really convinced that one of those, you know, horrible add-on operations has to exist, then you might start asking, well, why is that operation there? Like what third factor is causing it to exist even within a given system? Like why does this particular operation of impoverishment happen? You know, what is the third factor that's pushing it to exist? That might be an interesting set of questions to ask
0: yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, Heidi. This Um, was a a very illuminating conversation. I appreciate you taking time out of your day.
1: It's my pleasure. I hope uh, that somebody enjoys it.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. That is our, that is everyone. Well, my hope as well.
1: (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening, everyone. Please join us next time. We'll be continuing to interview more experts in distributed morphology and also working on a series of tutorials talking with students working in distributed morphology and other morphological topics.